Welcome to The Teacher's Story. I'm Jackie Scully. This is a podcast to elevate teacher voice. In this program, you will hear teachers sharing their journey into this profession and their ideas for education. I'm kicking it off Teacher Appreciation Week, which starts May 2nd. This is about honest, vulnerable, inspiring storytelling. It's a time and a space for teachers to share their ideas for the future of education. Teachers are beautiful beings who give their heart and soul to their community. They're innovators, they're inspirational, not only to children, but to the people around them. And they deserve to share their voice. So welcome to The Teacher's Story. Enjoy. Hi, welcome to The Teacher's Story. I'm Jackie Scully, and today we have Lauren Lum with us. And she is a former teacher. She's worked in the New York City uh, School District, um, in Brooklyn specifically. And then she moved to Maine, and she's worked in a school district in Maine as well. She is currently looking to get into DEI work, training, facilitator. She's also starting to work for a program called OutSchool. And she's just really excited to kind of explore what new possibilities could be on the horizon for her in her career. So welcome, Lauren. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited. Um, The last time we talked, I just was so excited to have Lauren on the show because her passion for, you know, what, where education should go and really looking at real social justice in education, amplifying all voices like DEI work in schools, Um, And that's what we want to be seeing, you know, moving forward. So I was just really excited to have you on. Um, My first question for you is what inspired you to get into education? Anything from your younger years or was it later on in life? So one thing that stands out for me is a moment when I realized I had been lied to by adults around me and by the history books and the narrative that was out there. I had an amazing history teacher in high school, Mr. Leisler, and we studied the Harlem Renaissance. Mm. And he took us, I, I grew up in the Metro New York area, and he took us to Harlem for a walking tour, like a historical walking tour to see, you know, where all of these historical sites were and the famous photographs that have been taken. And all I had heard about Harlem prior to that was don't go there. It is a super dangerous place. You know, if you're stuck on the train, don't get off the train at 125th street, go to grand central because, you know, if you are in Harlem, you will be like instantly murdered or something along those lines. And here we were walking around like a vibrant, friendly, thriving, African-American neighborhood where, you know, it was just like any other neighborhood, except the people had darker skin Mm -hmm. and it was rich with history and culture and great food. And I never felt unsafe. Of course, I was with a whole group of people, but it's and that that inspired me and that led me to. I went to college, I studied history, I concentrated in intellectual history Mm. at University of Pennsylvania. So Mm. I'm reading a lot of, you know, old white guys. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I picked up African-American studies as a minor and fell in love with W.E.B. Du Bois, Mm -hmm. who I had learned about in the Harlem Renaissance. And he talked about going into the Reconstruction Era South 
and teaching kids who had nothing, but he could give them knowledge and he could give them truth. And that, you know, I guess I had a bit of like white savior complex back mm -hmm. then, mm -hmm. but I felt like, well, this is something I want to do. I want to be an advocate for the truth. And mm. so today, you know, we're not afraid of going into Harlem. Harlem's actually like super gentrified now, but we're afraid of indoctrination and we're afraid of facing what, what's true in our history that mm. is difficult and often painful and often uncomfortable. And, you know, we see a lot of resistance to that out there, mm -hmm. you know, where laws are getting passed, you know, don't discuss anything that might make people uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, what is that? Learning is uncomfortable because you're, you know, when you learn something, you're correcting errors and making mm -hmm. new connections in your brain. And that's how it happens. So you have to be comfortable with discomfort sometimes. Absolutely. And there's so many parts there that I just want to highlight, starting with that teacher. I love that. And kudos to history teachers that really get their students out there to, you know, look at the communities around them. Um, I had a guest on early back that was from my prior school and she would do the same thing. Like we were in Wilmington, Delaware and many of the students are like, I don't really know much about Wilmington even though our school was right there. Yeah. And so you gotta get out in the communities because you do, you hear what people say and often it's not true. And when you go out and you see these thriving, beautiful cultural communities, then you really can learn something new and have a new perspective. And then it also inspires you not only maybe now I want to maybe become a teacher because this teacher yeah. really inspired me, but also I want to go out and discover the real truth on my own and not just listen to what people are saying. So that lesson, that field trip is so impactful for young people. And I would love to do that more in my own classroom and, and just love to see that more in schools across the country. Um, that's great that you had this kind of like awakening too at the University of Pennsylvania. So that's like right in our area. I'm in the Philadelphia area. Oh, cool. Wonderful school. Um, <laughs> but yes, W.E. Du Bois is amazing. And I think just when you are genuinely just reading primary source documents from the different voices, not just like you said, the voices of like old white men who were in power for a long time, but from all of these different you know, uh, perspectives, then you really like learn true history and it kind of open you up to really want to explore, like, how do we bring those truths to the classroom? And I think you are a little bit ahead of the game because that is kind of like, what is just starting now? Like in a lot of places, like a lot of schools now, like you said, are kind of wrestling with that. Like, oh, wait, we're going to teach the real truth. Like that's going to be difficult or that's going to be controversial. I don't know why truth is controversial, but it is. And you were already starting that like early on. So kind of leading into my next question, what were some of your early teaching experiences like um, when you were in New York City? So I've been, so I started teaching in 2005, February 1st, 2005. I was a mid-year teacher in the New York City Teaching Fellows Program. Okay. And so we were placed in schools that were very under-resourced, that had high teacher turnover, that had usually inexperienced brand new principals. And I 
you know, started mid-year with a class that had substitute teachers, you know, for most of the school year. And what I remember most was actually my second year when I started teaching fourth grade class and went through most of the year with like no books or resources really, except very, very like old falling apart basil readers, you know, no literature in my classroom, you know, everything, you know, everything was just outdated and Mm. old and felt old and, you know, felt falling apart. And how do you help kids feel enthusiastic for learning when, you know, they open a book and the spine falls off Mm. and the first new thing we ever got in our classroom. And the only new thing we ever got were test prep books. Of course. And not even, you know, test prep where, you're learning the, the it, it's pure testing skills. Like yeah. this is how you eliminate choices and multiple choice. And this is how you look for keywords and not even authentic learning, not authentic yeah. reading, but you know, if we can pass the test, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was very, that was very eye opening for me. So I became a bit of an activist in New York City. I was lucky enough to find a position at, you know, I call it the unicorn school because they're so hard to find, it seems. (laughs) I mean, a very, very like progressive oriented public school Mm -hmm. in Brooklyn where, you know, the leadership was strong and experienced, teachers were trusted and revered, and we were given any resource we needed. You know, you look at the the other side of that was we had those opportunities because we were in an affluent neighborhood and our PTA raised a million dollars a year. Wow. And you know, to have these structural inequalities that are the reason why my school in Harlem couldn't get any books. Mm. But, you know, my school in Brooklyn had a musical theater program because the PTA was able to bring in a teaching artist. So we had Mm. this very like experiential, hands-on, project-based. Mm. You know, the culture was very child-centered and progressive. Teachers went by their first names and mm. we didn't give grades and it was mm. very growth-oriented and everyone, like we all felt like we were on the same side. Mm. We thematic units, very civil rights, social justice-based And Mm. I loved it. I did my best teaching there. And I also was able to do a lot of advocacy because I had that support where Mm -hmm. I never felt like my voice was stifled. So I worked with the social justice caucus of the teachers union. I ran for office. Mm. I went down to Washington, D.C. for Save Our Schools and Occupy Mm. the DOE with letters from my students about how they felt about test prep. And we, you know, we did art projects where they, where they 
um, made paper mache masks out of test prep materials and wrote poems about it. And we did a photography project. I, I, even, I even felt comfortable talking to the media about these issues. I submitted testimony to, you know, when the state education chancellor did his tour, I, I went and I spoke and I was not ever afraid to use my voice. And that was something that I didn't realize at the time how rare that mm. was for a teacher because mm. my experience, so I moved, I moved, <laughs> I moved to Maine and I made a conscious choice to downplay that. I, mm. I got married and I changed my name and my old name, my maiden name was very, I had done all my activist work as Lauren Cohen, which is mm. a very common Jewish name. It's kind of ungoogleable. I've found like you can't really so I so I covered up that part of myself so mm. that I could be more more palatable to a you know a less sort of liberal bubble population mm. than what I was in mm. before you move on can I just hit on some things that you're talking about sure Wow. So I didn't even have all of this information from the first time we met um, about all of this, this activism that you did. And I just want to applaud you for that, especially being a young, new, a new teacher um, and to use your voice in that way and to see, you know, um, the disparities, right? Like you got, you got that experience of working in a school in Harlem and seeing books that were super old and falling apart and everything was about testing um, I had a similar experience when I taught in Hawaii. It was the same thing. I opened up the closets and all the books were old and we spent so much time prepping for the state test. It, it felt like weeks, like in the spring and everything revolved around test scores. And it just felt like it took away the, the purity of like, what are we doing here? And then you went to this, this school, an affluent school, raising a million dollars from the PTA, but it had all of these resources and you got to really you know, become this advocate. And I think when it's kind of like the position I'm in now, like when you are in a very secure setting where you feel very safe sharing your voice and you're in a, a place where you can create an experiment, you know, I feel like I kind of have that in my position now and coming out of COVID, I think there'll be more opportunities for that. Then you feel like you're like, I can do more, you know, and I know what's not working in other schools, or I know there's many teachers that don't have a voice and you're right. It is rare. It is very rare for teachers to have a space to actually say what they want to say. Cause another thing is too, education is politics. Politics is part of education and teachers often find, and schools will also kind of be putting that pressure on them of like, you can't just say whatever right? Yeah. You can't just speak your mind, right? You have to be neutral. <laughs> you have to be neutral. And of course, like being a history teacher, there's certain stances, depending on the issue. If it's a human rights issue, I'm going to obviously going to back human rights and give you that opinion, you know, and there's other political stances where I might be more neutral and also want to play kind of devil's advocate and hear different sides from students. But if you're really passionate about something, particularly in education, and this is like kind of your life, like mission, like 
yeah, we should be able to go out there and say what we want to say. And I love that you went to DC and you talked to the media and you had all of this experience to really be, and to share both sides of like, I see where schools are really lacking resources and it's really, you know, they have these disparities. And then I could see these beautiful schools that are thriving and these students are getting everything they need and more. Um, and that's a problem. I mean, that's a problem in our country and these are public schools, right? Like public education is, it's a social program and it was meant to be like anything. It was meant to be equal, but it's so different from town to town, city to city, state to state. And I mean, I've had students tell me in my own class, like I have, we have Camden scholars from Camden, New Jersey, and they will tell me how different it is. Like their friends going to school in Camden and then they had the opportunity to get a scholarship for our school. I mean, I had a student write a whole research paper about it last year, how different it is. Um, so I just wanted to acknowledge that before you move on, because now you're, you're sharing how it is, now you're moving to Maine and it was very different. Yeah. So this is kind of like that, you know, beginning of that transition, right? Yeah. But something you made me think about was even, you know, just how powerful test scores can be. I mean, when I, when I got the job at that unicorn school in Brooklyn, the reason that there was a job for me was in part because of test scores, because test scores were so focused on growth and like the student has to grow from this year to the next mm -hmm. year. And there was this district where the school was located had middle school choice and mm -hmm. a middle school application. Mm -hmm. And so those fourth grade test scores were incredibly important because those were the ones that counted for middle school. Mm -hmm. So parents in this affluent neighborhood would do everything to get their kids fourth grade test scores up and the fifth grade test scores would not show the growth. And mm -hmm. this was, and I got hired the year after the teacher's growth ratings had been published in the newspaper I mean, the fifth and the fifth grade teachers, you know, mm. were in this position where they looked like they tanked, but really it was because mm. of this artificial inflation that had happened. And really, you can't compare growth on two different tests. It's apples and oranges. Mm. Anyway, there's so much data out there that's like bad data anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I yeah. just had to say that. So Maine, yeah. Yeah. you know, I did my research, found out which school districts in the area were all about the test scores and which school district in the area was more child-centered. And I went to the child-centered one. Leadership has changed over. It's become more, much more focused on test scores and on teacher uniformity and addressing inequities by putting them on the individual teacher rather than mm -hmm. looking at like what is in place on a systemic level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one good example of that was we have two middle schools in our district. One middle school is on the campus of the high school. The kids at that middle school have a late bus every single day for after school programs. They're able to regularly visit the high school. Kids who are accelerated can even take classes there. Mm. The other middle school is 10 miles down the road. 
and they don't have the same resources. And to look at that situation and the the administration draws the conclusion, well, the problem is that the teachers at the school down the road aren't teaching the same thing and have lower standards. And we need to make sure that there's uniformity because that's how we have equity. Mm-hmm. So that- In one district, so different. In one district, yeah. Wow. Strict. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's just so bizarre how different it was in just one school district. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I feel like I could I feel like there's so much going on here. Yeah. So what, were you there uh, teaching during the pandemic? I kind of use that too as like another question. Like what was I that was. like? Or was that kind of like the the time period of where you're thinking like maybe this was time to transition out of the classroom? So I would say teaching during the pandemic kind of re-radicalized me okay. back into activist mode. Okay. Because I mean... For one thing, I was teaching sixth grade and my school, my school district insisted on keeping their grading policy intact during the, the initial spring 2020 closures, upheaval, you know, where a lot of our district is very rural, kids don't always have access, I mean, and we're supposed to keep grading them as if things are normal. And I, I just, I just couldn't, I was having, I mean, I already coming from a progressive school, I was, I already had trouble adjusting to giving A through F grades and treating, you know, treating feedback as, you know, always like a measure of, Mm. you know, like progress against not of, rather than like looking at individual student progress and growth, you know, sort of an arbitrary, like single measure score that you have to reach. Yeah. That was always something that I struggled with. Um, Cause I feel like grading is a whole thing, you know, where mm-hmm. you're grading compliance, you know, mm-hmm. is, or more so than you're grading. Yeah. But so what I ended up doing was giving everybody A's or yeah. a minuses or a pluses, depending, yeah. you know, if they, if they deserved a, a plus or if they weren't quite there and got an a minus. And that was controversial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not everybody liked that I did that. And this was at the height of the pandemic. This was at the height of the pandemic and these were sixth graders. So <laughs> honestly, what do the grades matter anyway? Right, it's, right. Nobody looks at the sixth grade report card. And I just, I just felt like I couldn't punish kids for not having access. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I taught a fully remote fifth grade program for the following year. And I made it work. I loved, you know, the autonomy of having kind of my own separate program because I, you know, there was in 
there was in this district, like this push for uniformity across classrooms and data up the wazoo. (laughs) And because, you know, my situation was different, I could kind of do things a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of flipped learning. I really worked hard on building community and we had very limited, like our district said that they didn't want kids to be on their screens for more than two hours a day. Mm -hmm. So I made the conscious effort to devote some of that limited face time to community building and Mm -hmm. to social activities for the kids because they were fifth graders. And I felt like this was extremely important. And I really thought that the students thrived Mm -hmm. and it, it sort of pained me to go Mm. back and see people dismiss remote learning as I even had colleagues say Mm. to me like, Oh, he didn't learn anything last year. He was fully remote. And I'm like, I was that a lot. I was a teacher last year. What what are you saying? (laughs) I know, I know that kid learned and it looked different. And, you know, something we should learn from the pandemic is that people need to feel heard. They need to Mm -hmm. feel safe. They need to feel like they matter. And returning to the classroom last year and the return to the status quo was so jarring. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, now we're supposed to just go back to doing everything the way it was before, Mm -hmm. but even more so because Mm -hmm. learning loss. And so we, you know, the school eliminated the extracurricular time during the day that had been used for like recess for some sort of lunchtime sports recess for some kids and club meetings Mm -hmm. and Mm. everything was like academic time. Everything has to be academic. Wow. That was last year. That was last year. And meanwhile, student behavior is going off the chart. Of course they need that social activity. Yeah. And they've been, you know, they've been through a collective trauma and even, you know, they've also been through a year where even the ones who were in school in person couldn't do group work the way, you know, a classroom would have kids collaborate. It all had to be like, they all had to be isolated at their own little desks. And me, you know, I had come off an entire year of like using my calming, like NPR host, voice to talk (laughs) to children on the internet and you know even just trying to command attention in the classroom was so difficult for me and I felt like you know it was my 17th year and I felt like it's my first year again Mm. and the burnout just that was when the burnout really but you can't go back to like how it was and then also dump more on them that's where you break people down, you know, and that's kind of where you were at. So if you want to just kind of share a little bit more about this now, kind of this moment of, you know, I'm burnt out. I got to look at something else. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, you know, I was thinking about the question of like, what most needs to change in education. And a year ago, I would have said, like standardized tests, get rid of a standardized test, you know, and secondary to that, okay, grading. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, we have, 
I think 36 states that have either passed or are looking at legislation to limit the teaching of history. And that's terrifying. It is. And there's an atmosphere where parental entitlement has gotten Mm -hmm. just so out of control where, you know, parents or even community members who aren't parents feel like because it's public school and we pay taxes, Mm. you know, we get to have a say over the teachers who are the experts in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And what Mm -hmm. I see is parents co-opting the language of equity and talking about how their children are being discriminated against because they're Christian and they have to see rainbow flags and you're discriminating Mm. against their beliefs in traditional Christianity or students are being marginalized because they're conservative because, Mm. you know, we want to talk about systemic racism and white privilege as phenomena that exist Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so you see them like like I really I've seen this firsthand I worked on my district's equity and education committee and what eventually what really started began to stymie us was the parents who were taking over and co-opting that language Mm -hmm. and saying they were being discriminated against because they don't want to accept that there's different kinds of families and different kinds of love out mm. there. Yeah. And that, that, you know, it's hard. And I have had parental complaints about mm. me and my teaching, you know, for using materials from learning for justice, teaching, mm-hmm. which was then teaching tolerance, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you know, even just using those materials, I had parents go to the school board and say, you know, this is left wing propaganda. Where's the other side of this? Mm-hmm. You know, they're affiliated with Southern Poverty Law Center, and that's a political organization. And this teacher is bringing politics into the classroom. And there, I was teaching. Mm-hmm. I was teaching ELA and sharing that we were going to read poetry from people who had a lot of different life experiences and people of color and LGBTQ people. And we learn about different voices and we Mm -hmm. learn to accept them. And that somehow got turned into a rumor that I was teaching the entire year. I would be focusing on human sexuality and LGBTQ identity through poetry. And that was like, wow, parents and even colleagues of mine participated in spreading this rumor that that was something I planned to do. I don't even know that many poems about, I mean, I don't even know that many poems to teach an entire year on that, but wow, that's, So I think seeing that, and that was in 2017, 2018, and now we have this whole groomer language. We had the CRT panic, and now we have teachers being called groomers and pedophiles. And I was a civil rights team leader. Mm -hmm. I was the, we had a gay straight alliance Mm -hmm. in my middle school that had to disband because we were told we could no longer meet during school hours and the kids, many of them didn't feel comfortable asking their parents if they could stay after school to go to their gay club because they weren't all comfortable sharing those. Right. Of course. 
Oh man. And I, it just, and I realized how much I was in, I became incentivized to just play it safe and just mm-hmm. avoid any topic mm-hmm. that would, that would provoke outrage because mm-hmm. we had parents weaponizing their own children, you know, to report back on teachers and they mm-hmm. were looking for that. And I, wow, wow, wow. you know, I got to the point where I said, they don't, they don't pay me enough to be abused and to even when my district said they were they supported me you know they would support me by telling me they supported me but I still had to take the abuse and be yelled at by parents and have angry emails and Mm. have parents talking about me on social media wow and that and I never felt safe Mm. and I, I had to leave and I'm, I'm sad about it, but at the same time, since I've left, my mental health has improved greatly. I, yeah, you had to leave. I had to leave. I definitely made the right choice. Yeah. Lauren. Wow. And I know we talked a little bit about this before, but just all of that. And when you say like, they don't pay me enough, it doesn't even matter if you get (laughs) you know, you're making six, seven figures. No one should be treated that way. No one should be slandered like that. And to be like up on social media, having, you know, bashing a teacher, this is, it's absolutely appalling. And I know this has happened in other places around the country, but this is kind of the first time I've had someone on the show and really just this more like intimate view of that. And a person who experienced that kind of you know, uh, pushback to the level where, I mean, it is abusive. It's very abusive. Um, and so I think this conversation is important because I've said this before, the media is going to spin this whole, all these teachers are leaving. Yeah. You have to hear these stories, right? There's good teachers leaving and there's good teachers staying in. It depends on their situation. And if I was in your situation, and especially the passion you have as a history, you know, humanities teacher, same with me. And I was being like bashed for teaching truth. And I, I teach those resources too. I use them too. Yeah. I, I would be so heartbroken. It's not just like, well, let me leave the school and find another place. Cause it sounds like maybe, I don't know, it's just the area is more of this kind of, you know, type of, um, community and how they respond to this type of curriculum. So I don't know if there is even other schools that you would look at, but I would be so heartbroken and just beaten down that I'm like, I just, I can't put myself back out there again. You know, what if I do go to another school and go to another classroom and I still want to continue to do this good work and it happens again, I will literally be, I'd be in an institution. Like I can't do this. So you have to in these circumstances, you have to take care of yourself. And I'm glad that at least as hard as it is, it's it's a a really hard decision because you love what you do. And it's always, it's like, it's not not the kids. You love the kids, you know, and you want to teach them the truth. And this generation wants to know the truth. They They want it. And so you're being pulled in so many directions. And of course you're like, well, I just, I got to do what's right for me. And especially at a moment where I'm like, I'm just so broken. Like I, I just have to. And I think now you're in a space where 
you could talk a little bit about this, um, about the work you want to get into and what you're looking to get into, that still can make such an impact on, you know, eventually it can be tied to education, but it can, it's impacting communities, right? Like, you know, if you come back into your activism or come into DEI or those kind of roles, like it's still making an impact on society and it might not just have to be in a classroom, right? It could be in another way, in another, you know, forum. So if you want to talk a little bit about where you're at now, and I'm so happy that you are doing better. And thank you for sharing all of that. It's very, very brave of you to share all of that with us. So in terms of what I want to do when I grow up, <laughs> I don't, it's, it's been more difficult than I expected, yeah. but I've also found clarity in terms of, I am very much, I'm very much a social justice warrior mm -hmm. and a warrior for equity in education. And I'm, you know, I'm hoping to work in that DEI field or looking at nonprofits and other organizations mm. where we're improving access and equity for marginalized groups mm. or like restoring democratic practices to education. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I started off on this sort of corporate training path, like, oh, I love speaking in front of people. Mm. I, I love teaching. I love facilitating and leading, but you know, it's that word corporate mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. it, that really just was such an adjustment and getting advice like, well, on your resume, refer to your students as clients. It feels so disingenuous <laughs> yeah. to me. That's, that's not you. <laughs> like, it's not me. I can't just, you know, I do love to teach, but I don't think I would be able to find that passion if I'm just training people on like yeah. how to be a better capitalist you know who you are and I think you have found yourself through this pandemic because you had that kind of transition coming to Maine where you're like I kind of felt like I was losing myself but then going through all of this I, I always believe there's a silver lining right on the other side and so the silver lining from all of this is that I think you're really coming into what you really want to do and and honing your genuine self and like I would love to see you in that type of work and continuing to do that social justice type of work. So I will also share your LinkedIn information and any other information in the show notes for our listeners or anyone else out there. And I would love for anyone to reach out to Lauren if you know of any possibilities in those fields that she mentioned. You have such a heart and you have such a passion. And I think you, just, you need to keep on that, keep on that path. Yes. Hey. I'm also go, I'm also starting on out school mm -hmm. and my mission there is what I'm hoping to do is provide opportunities for students who live in those states that are really clamping down on what can mm. be taught to have an opportunity to learn about these issues that are important to yes. learn about systemic racism and to learn about feminism and women's rights and gay rights and LGBTQ history and all of these things that are now being erased from school curricula because, you know, they might make some people uncomfortable. Again, you need to be uncomfortable to learn. Yes, and I have mixed feelings about out school because on one hand, it's like kind of a like libertarian break down the public schools 
you know, yes. I still yes. believe in public education yeah. as a public good, yeah. but students also need, they need to learn those things. And yes, they do. I, you know, I've taught every subject in elementary, but history and social studies are my passion. Mm -hmm. When I taught in Brooklyn, all of our thematic units were based around history and it's something like it's a talent and a passion of mine that I'm hoping that I can bring to more people who don't live in these affluent, often liberal enclaves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a start, right? Like you have yeah. at least this platform out school where you have the ability to possibly then go and have these lessons for children who might be in places that are not getting that information. And little by little, that all makes an impact, you know, and then maybe this continues down that path of like doing even more with, again, social justice and DEI. And I'm a, a true believer in it's just one little step at a time and don't feel like you're not making an impact or you're not getting anywhere because you are when you are in your genuine self and you know your mission and it feels like so pure in your heart. It's just you're on the right path. It's just, you know, sometimes it's just one little, one little step at a time, but you're, you're doing it. Like you had to get out of that situation. Yeah. And you're still passionate about education and you're still now you're working for out school and this program that, you know, is for education. So, I mean, it's just because a teacher transitions out of a certain school or classroom, traditional classroom, some do go on and become corporate trainer or do other jobs. And I know many of them then want to go back into education because they find that it's not really their passion. Um, but you can leave a classroom setting or a school that was not, you know, treating you well. And if you still have that drive to, to be part of this mission of education and social justice, you can do that in other ways. And exactly. that's what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we have we have a crisis in this country because people don't understand how government works and they don't understand civics mm -hmm. and it's gotten mm -hmm. worse over the years because social studies, you know, has never been a standardized testing subject. So right. it's gotten pushed to the side and now it's being not only pushed to the side, but also censored. And mm -hmm. one of my, one of my idols, the great progressive educator, Deb Meyer has said, mm -hmm. we can't prepare children for living in a democracy if they've never experienced one. Mm. And so I always strove to bring democratic practices into my classroom community. And I hope to be able to at least expose children mm -hmm. living in more repressive places yeah. to the possibilities out there and to their own power as citizens. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Lauren. I love your story. I love your journey. You shared a lot that you've gone through and I really appreciate you sharing that. I know that's very difficult to, you know, um, even bring up those memories again and go through it again, but I think you are in a beautiful place and I only wish the best for this new path. And again, I'll include all of your information in the show notes and reach out to Lauren on LinkedIn. Uh, she's a wonderful human being. So you should definitely connect with her. So thank you so much for being on the teacher story. It's so nice talking with you today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Bye. Bye.